In the 14th century, there was a political philosopher in Tunisia. His name was Ibn Khaldun. And he made a statement that is still, in many ways, held to today. He said this, geography is destiny. And what he meant by that was that where you're born, the particulars of your location will have a massive effect on your life. And you you would know this in one sense as you think about a little boy born in war-torn Syria, maybe versus a little girl who's born in a very nice home in, in Switzerland. That barring exceptional circumstances, normally the destiny of their life will take a much different path. It's, it's true for cities that are, are located along a trade route, that generally they'll have a higher standard of living than perhaps those places that aren't so fortunate. So geography matters. It's actually true in this emirate. For some time now, Ras al-Khaimah has been in a dispute with Iran over the greater and lesser Tums Islands. Why? Because land matters. Now, I promise you this is not a lecture on geography and its particulars this morning, but this is a sermon on destiny and the way that the Word of God shapes and changes our destiny. A baby born in Bethlehem to what were very poor parents would not have had, in the world's eyes, great prospects for his destiny. He made remarkable claims about his destiny. But surely the cross that he ended up on put all of that to rest. And yet, yet, neither this unimportant city into which he was born, the feeding trough in which he was born in, or the shameful cross, the most embarrassing way to be executed in the ancient world, none of that stopped the destiny which he proclaimed would be his. That tomb really was empty on that Sunday morning, and a Roman ruler was forced to recognize it and deal with it. And to the surprise of the ancient world, people started following this man. And he's still followed today. But what about us? Now, the world would, in large part, say we're delusional about what we think about our destiny. So, what is it? Are we delusional? Do we have a destiny that is greater than we could, even as we sit here, better than we can imagine? help this morning, we turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, an Old Testament prophet who speaks of one who will come into history, a king, a servant, a warrior. This morning, we see this hope. Last week, we saw the branch. This week, we read of the Messiah. Turn to Isaiah 61. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll work through it together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me 
to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. Here's what I want you to get from this text this morning. Christian, your destiny is certain. Your destiny is certain. The Messiah will accomplish the work of a world transforming salvation. Your destiny is certain. The Messiah will accomplish the work of a world transforming salvation. This text is so beautifully put together. We're going to move through it today in three parts. We're going to see the Messiah's proclamation. We're going to see the people's transformation and then a global salvation. So we're going to begin with the Messiah's proclamation there in the first three verses. The Messiah's proclamation, verses 1 to 3. So when we come to this text in Isaiah, this prophet has been painting a picture of someone who will come in the world. He's just painted in the chapters before a a picture of a servant who will come into history, suffer, he's going to die, he's going to substitute himself for the sin and the sinners for whom he's come. And then just up to this chapter, he's been painting another picture. A divine warrior 
that will accomplish salvation for his people. Yet the surprise here, if you've been reading up to this chapter, is that it's been Yahweh declaring he will do this work for his people. When suddenly, here, he anoints someone else. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And the question you would ask yourself is, who is it that has this spirit? Who's been empowered by Yahweh in this way? The Messiah. Literally, God's anointed one. But what's so easy to overlook that I don't want you to overlook is that for this unbelievable task, he's anointed not with a sword. He's anointed with the Spirit. So it's not in full view here, but here we see glimpses, unveilings of the Trinitarian God that we meet in Scripture. The Lord, Yahweh, has guaranteed the work, but now someone who's in relationship with Yahweh, who has His Spirit is anointed for this work. What is it that characterizes this coming age that the Jewish people expected, the age of the Messiah? It is the gift of the Spirit. This is what the prophet Ezekiel looked forward to in Ezekiel 36, that Yahweh would cleanse His people, would put His Spirit in His people, And calls his people to walk in his statutes. So the Messiah will be a man ahead of his time. A man anointed by the Spirit. Who ushers in the age of the Spirit. And the Lord, Yahweh, is here proclaiming he will supply everything for your salvation. Salvation was not a last-second emergency operation. The Lord prepared for it for centuries. True salvation requires the work of each person of the triune Godhead. And each person gives out of the fullness of their godness who they are in order to achieve this. Now, we are in the midst of Christmas season, and I have no doubt that you will, I hope you will, sit down to very good meals over this season. Uh, here is some wisdom that's free of charge for the kids, at least. I want you to be very certain that when you sit down to a meal like this, there is a lot of preparation that has gone into it, most likely by your mother, boys. She's done much more than throw that meal in the microwave. And if that is all that she did, you should still be thankful because she was probably putting up with you and the rest of your siblings for hours before that. The point is, what you suddenly see in front of your face that you will enjoy, so much preparation went into. And if that's the case for a meal in our house, How much more salvation?
on which our eternity hangs. I want to ask yourself if you this morning have thoughts of God as if he holds back. Or that God's not generous. The incarnation of God the Son could not make any clearer the generosity and the goodness of God. You can so easily have a disconnect between seeing and discerning by faith God the Son in the flesh and then seeing and discerning your circumstances by your own reason. You can easily see the generosity of God in your salvation and then somehow fail to believe that He's just as good to you in your life. But here we see The Lord not only gives the Messiah, the Son, the Son comes willingly, and He's amply supplied with the Spirit in this great messianic work to accomplish salvation. So if you are tempted, if you have hard thoughts of God in your own soul this morning, I would argue with you that what you're doing is you're thinking of God in a way that is not consistent with what he's revealed. Does the Lord appear to be holding back here? Does he make promises that make him seem stingy or generous? For you as a Christian, God means for you to know deeply his love and to be sure of it. Now, my guess is that most parents know what it's like to do and to do and to do for your children. And then at some point, your child to say to you, you don't love me. You never do anything for me. When I did this, I didn't have a clue, not just how much their love for me, but how much they did for me that I wasn't even remotely aware of how much more the Lord who planned the Messiah who anoints the Messiah with the spirit and then for centuries worked to bring this great salvation about and then notice in this text who this work is for it's for those with obvious need We are so used to living in a world where those who have power, unless there's restraints in some way, don't hesitate to use their power to abuse or to manipulate or to take advantage of, to get for themselves. But here is someone anointed with the Spirit of the Lord using all of His power for the weak for the helpless, for those totally dependent upon someone else to change their situation. We are either way too familiar with the Scriptures or way too unfamiliar with our need if we're not amazed that someone with this kind of power comes into this kind of world for this kind of people. I mean, you just get a sense of His work In the first three verses, the Lord has anointed me to do this and this and this. Everything he proclaims is good news. 
He, verse 1, brings good news to the poor. He binds up the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty to captives, to those bound. Do you see, each person, each category there has a need. And the remedy is so personal to their need. His work is so personal. It's not what we would expect. The Messiah in this this prophecy is mysterious. We know from already in this book, he's a servant with no beauty that would attract anyone in the world to him who will accomplish salvation, not with power, but by being punished for the transgression of his people, but also here a spirit-anointed Messiah who proclaims freedom to those trapped in the darkness of captivity, spiritually in bondage, to those who are broken-hearted over the sin in their lives, over what sin has done to the world, those in deep need. When Emmanuel and I were in Zambia just a few weeks ago, uh, we were with a, a, a gentleman named Phil Hunt. He's been laboring in Zambia for God's glory since 1992. The day before we left, he actually took me around the city. He showed me by God's grace the churches that had been planted around the city. He took me to this graveyard where he said, I've conducted more funerals than I can count. In the early days, that meant many, many people who had died from HIV and AIDS. And he said there were days when he would bury the body, and at the same time preach the funeral. And then he took me to what were the slums. You would have a nice neighborhood, and then we'd go right into a slum. And it was objective poverty. He, he told me that the people there generally live on the equivalent of three to four dirhams a day. As we drove through there, it's, it's, it's striking. I asked him, do, do you think that they know they live in objective poverty? He said, you know, most people don't think of themselves that way. They just survive. They live. As I was thinking about that, it occurred to me that that is what's true about this world spiritually. Most people don't see themselves as they really are. Spiritually, from the vantage point of, of heaven, Living in what is spiritual bankruptcy, total poverty, in desperate need of of rescue. And so we've built societies, we build communities, we order our lives, and we build these systems that convince us we're much better off than we really are. And so most people would read a chapter like this and think it's nice sentiment, but it's not something they desperately need. A spirit-anointed Messiah? Do you see yourself rightly this morning? If you're a Christian, have you forgotten the depths to which the Messiah has gone to rescue you? Even the nicest of circumstances was beyond poverty for God the Son to leave the glories of heaven. And notice what he proclaims in verse 2. The year of favor 
and only a day of vengeance. Favor will work itself out over time. Vengeance will come suddenly. And it will not take the Lord long to accomplish. So God's work in salvation is not just done through judgment on the Son. It's done with expectation of the coming judgment by the Son. When you think of the vengeance of God, do not think of some petty payback. It is the exact, precise justice of God against wickedness, personal wickedness of sinners. We we see here the God who is preparing to save in a lavish way, also preparing to judge righteously. Be comforted by God's long purposes to save. Be warned by the certainty and his long-held purposes to judge. This is not some arbitrary man-made wrath when God loses it. This is holy wrath. Righteously opposed to what ought to be opposed. God's vengeance is not his essence. God's goodness and love are his essence. But as soon as sin entered into this world, God's holiness is such that he will not compromise who he is as God. And so the holy God will exact judgment, retribution for wrong. So just as you as a Christian can be sure of his salvation and its goodness and so praise him, you can be sure of his judgment and its goodness and so praise him. In his goodness, he shows grace. Verses 2 to 3, he cares for those who mourn. Why do they mourn? Back in Isaiah 57, Yahweh declared he will Heal the one who mourns over his sin and its iniquity, its personal and its worldwide effects. Here the work is given to the Messiah. He places a beautiful headdress over those who mourn. Instead of ashes on the forehead, a headdress. Gladness instead of mourning. Clothed with praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called Oaks of righteousness, which are the planting of the Lord. Now, just to get a sense of this great reversal, oaks play a decently significant role in the book of Isaiah. The very beginning, Isaiah speaks of the wickedness of God's people and their folly in following the idolatry of the nation. He says they would be ashamed of the oaks that they desired. What was their destiny? They were going to follow the course of the nations as they foolishly worshipped oaks, great trees. But the Messiah changes their destiny and makes his people, his idolatrous people, oaks of righteousness. Why did he do this? Don't miss that purpose clause at the very end of verse 3. The planting 
of the Lord that he may be glorified. Here is encouraging truth. God's people get the help and God gets all the glory. God's glory is always God's highest aim. There's no greater glory that the God who is can pursue. So God will send the Messiah. He will proclaim lavish grace for his captive people. And this will all bring glory to God. Even your salvation is not ultimately about you. It is about the God who desires to display the riches of his grace to the world. There's no greater higher end for which God can pursue. And there's no greater end for which you can give your life. God gets glory as his Messiah does this work that only God's power can bring about. So what is it at this point in their life that God's people were to understand about their God? That their God is the God of the Exodus. Delivered his people from Egypt, who would deliver his people from exile, and who would ultimately work a mighty salvation in the Messiah. Just as you and your own nations have understandings of the past of your nation and what forms your nation, so God's people would have read this chapter for centuries. It would have shaped who they were and their expectations as a people. And for centuries, this chapter, this passage, would have just hung there. And the question for them would be, how is this going to take shape? What will this extraordinary promise on which we hang our hopes look like? So I want you to imagine what it would have been like to have been in that synagogue on that normal Saturday when Jesus of Nazareth walked in, stood up, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then suddenly, he rolls up the scroll. He sits down and he tells them, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Ordinary Saturday. The very ordinary Jesus declaring that in himself, in that synagogue, this passage you've known your whole life is about me. And can you imagine the, the silence, the shock in that room as they looked at the very ordinary Jesus and the extraordinary weight of this passage? God's salvation is extraordinary. But it comes in the most ordinary ways to the most ordinary people. Jesus, Nazareth, the Messiah, came in an ordinary way for ordinary sinners with extraordinary power. 
And in a very ordinary way, the good news of the Messiah is to proclaim to you this morning. You're no different than me. Once in total darkness, sinned against the the God who's created you and, and me. One who stands in need of the anointed Messiah in this passage. Messiah comes into the world not just to conquer sin, but in himself to die for sin and sinners. Substituting himself for our judgment. And God raised him. Sounds so ordinary. It will change everything about the world. And so for you, by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in him, you can be one of those who's rescued. Your destiny totally reversed by the power of the Messiah. That's the good news. Will you believe? You can know the Lord's favor. I don't want you to miss this. Where the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, stopped. Look there at the beginning of verse 2. He stopped reading right before and the day of vengeance of our God. He was telegraphing to them, the year of the Lord's favor has begun, but the day of vengeance awaits. We are right now in the year of the Lord's favor, but the year will ultimately lead to the day when it comes to an end. They marveled at Jesus in that synagogue. But more than marveling is demanded. You must believe, oh, the goodness of God, that he would send his own son into the world that deserved condemnation, but he did not condemn it. He came in to save it and suffered greatly to do so. Yahweh anoints the Messiah with his spirit to proclaim the saving work of God. The Messiah's proclamation leads to the people's transformation. That's what we'll see secondly. The people's transformation. There in verses 4 through 9. What we have here is a very bleak situation. Verse 4, ancient ruins, former devastations, ruined cities, devastations of many generations. It it looks to me like it's a a war-torn country. It needs more than government intervention. It requires the power of God. And here God's people are not just transformed. They, by the power of the Messiah, become agents of transformation. They shall build up, repair, raise up. Strangers tending to their flocks. Foreigners coming to them. They're so transformed that they can fulfill their God-given purpose. What was their purpose? God made it clear to Moses in the Exodus that his people were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here they're so transformed by the Messiah that their destiny is reversed and it's fulfilled. Priests of the Lord, ministers of the Lord. What is it that God does for his people? He makes us what we cannot make ourselves We we cannot fulfill this mission God has given us. And so God transforms us that we can. 
So right now, we're in the year of the Lord's favor. We know his salvation. It also means we have work to do. He's transformed us to do. There are good works the Lord has for us to do. How you live, your present obedience matters more than you think. It is easy, you could do this right now, bring to mind those who have affected your life deeply, spiritually, how they impacted you. Think about those people who who maybe led you to the Lord or helped you to grow in the Lord in a significant way. Now consider this. Those people would have had someone or a number of people who would have impacted them spiritually. Probably unknown to you. Some unnamed person could not have imagined how their faithfulness would end up affecting your life. Their obedience mattered. And we as a church, Protestant, evangelical that we are, we stake everything in our life together on this fact. We are not saved by any works that we can do. But never think that your works do not matter. We are saved by Christ's work to do good work. So in a very practical way, that means that your private fight against sin is actually not private. It has public consequences. You live before God's face. Uh, Your own sin can dull your love for the Lord. It can squelch your communion with God. It can affect your usefulness in the gospel. Is God gracious? More than we can imagine. And at the same time, we have a calling to be a holy people, joyfully devoted to God for God's glory for the sake of the world. So your personal faithfulness next week matters in our fight of faith together. And here is God guaranteeing you that you're not on a failed mission. Who knows what unknown person your life used by God will impact? How strange is this community? We're the one community on the planet that's going to keep encouraging each other to live this way, to see the world this way. So hear it again this week. You're not crazy. What you're living for is not crazy. You're giving your life for the only mission by the power of God that will succeed in the end. Be encouraged. God isn't just transforming us to fulfill his purposes. He's transforming our entire circumstances. Look at that in verse 7. Instead of shame, a double portion. Instead of dishonor, rejoicing in their lot, possessing a double portion in the land, an everlasting joy. Whenever I exchange money at Alan Sari, they give me that little piece of paper that you put in the big box. You know, you can win the drawing for the gold or the car or the house. Every time I get it, almost without fail, I tell the person, there's no way I'm going to win this. Still put it in the box. You never know. What if you woke up tomorrow and you had some long-lost uncle or aunt that left you an unbelievable amount of money? 
It would tangibly change your life. And yet, what is God assuring you here? There's not some chance. There's total certainty you will inherit a great inheritance. The cross and the resurrection guarantee it. God is saying to his people, the way things are are not how they will always be. Our destiny is beyond what we think. We might lose, we might gain in this life. Our inheritance is certain. And it will not underwhelm us. He says, not a portion, but a double portion. Not joy, everlasting joy. God is giving you every reason to press on in faith. Whatever losses, whatever crosses you carry, God will transform you in such a way that every loss will prove to have been worth it. So assess your present obedience, your present fight and temptation in light of the promises that are coming. Transformation from shame to double portion, from dishonor to rejoicing in everlasting joy. How do we know? The Lord guarantees it by his character. Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. Why does the Lord declare his love for justice to guarantee this overwhelming blessing of his people? Because he's saying, just as my vengeance will be just, so also will my salvation. God's not going to give us all this out of an act of charity. It will be because of his justice in the work of the Messiah. This robbery, this wrong that God hates here, more than likely, this is the robbery and the wrong not being committed by the nations, but by his own people who were withholding from God. They were a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? They were to be wholly devoted to God. But they withheld from God. But get this. God withholds nothing from his people. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. To whom is God devoted? To a people who so easily waver in devotion. I I want you to see how good God is. He's going to faithfully give us our recompense, our reward, because he will satisfy all the terms of our salvation. That's the logic of the gospel. We withhold from God. God will not withhold anything from us. Do your thoughts of God need to be corrected this morning? He's not stingy. We're stingy. And we think God is like that. But he's not. He gives. He gives. He gives. He withholds nothing from his people until the very moment when he himself in his son comes to become one of his people. The manger, the cross, the empty tomb, all of it proclaimed to you, this covenant is everlasting. It will not be broken. We will be so transformed that we will realize God's long-purpose destiny for us and the world will realize our God reigns. Verse 9, God's tiny, marginalized people no longer mocked 
because the nations think our God is weak or that he's failed, but can obviously see he blessed us. God will transform the world, and that transformation will be for the good of his people. Take God at his word. Believe him. He has, he will transform us, and he will bring glory to himself over the world. And that's where we go to next. A global salvation. A global salvation. That's how this text ends in verses 10 through 11. Isaiah often switches pronouns in such a way that it can be confusing who is speaking. I would argue here at the very end, this is the Messiah exulting in what has been achieved. And what is it that he has achieved? A global salvation. This is not a proclamation of empty words. God's salvation reaches to the ends of the earth. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice. My soul shall exult. Why does the Messiah rejoice? Because Yahweh, who has declared he would save his people, has clothed the Messiah for this work of salvation. Robes of righteousness as a bridegroom and as a bride adorns herself. He's clothed in royal beauty, and all of it comes from Yahweh. So he is exulting in all that Yahweh gives him for his messianic work to save. What did his people need? Salvation. Righteousness. And here he is being lavishly clothed with what we need. And he rejoices in the Lord. He joyfully comes The Father delights in planning every bit of our salvation. Now, there are things, obviously, that I know as a father I did not understand as a child. When I was growing up, especially on Christmas morning, I could never understood how it gave my dad such joy to give the presents and to not care about what he got for Christmas. I I understand that now. Dad wouldn't wouldn't hesitate. He didn't have to pretend to show his joy in giving. It just overflowed. What was he joyful about? He was joyful about the joy my brothers and me had in receiving. How much more our Heavenly Father, the Messiah rejoicing in Yahweh, what is it that stops you from rejoicing in the Lord? He's clothing the Messiah fully. And the Messiah rejoices in Yahweh in the work. And he does not fail in this work. Verse 11, just as the earth and the garden bring forth and sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. It is a certainty that this work will go before the nations. Now you have to think about how preposterous this was when this was written. That Yahweh's salvation would spring up, praise would spring up before the nations. I mean, it was the Babylonian Empire that seemed so permanent. It was the Roman Empire that seemed so permanent. No one would have thought this would be true when they looked at that baby in that manger who would end up hanging on a cross. But God's power, visible in weakness... 
Salvation by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of the sword. The Spirit has worked in power just to form this gathering. Is he not powerful enough to form other gatherings just like that? In rooms, in halls, in houses, not much different than this one. Brothers and sisters, the Messiah will not fail. He's not failing. Your faithfulness is not wasted. Pray with this confidence. God uses the prayers of his peoples to these great ends. I was working on this. I was just so encouraged thinking about the ways a number of you labor. I mean, even yesterday, a number of men getting together ultimately in a park to make Christ known. God uses ordinary labors like baseball in a park or getting together in a desert on an evening or a Christmas gathering in your home. All of it feels so ordinary. And yet, isn't that the way that the Lord works to accomplish his extraordinary ends? Be confident in this in our life together. Rejoice and exalt in the Lord because you are included in this great promise and because he will use you to bring about these great promises, this global salvation. I'm very aware as we are here together this morning, no one would walk into this room and think those people have an incredible destiny in front of them. I think if people knew that, they would be here. The hall would be filled. But weakness has always been God's way. Always been his way. The world has always failed to discern what is of eternal importance. The Messiah comes in the power of the Spirit, not the power of the sword. As a helpless baby, not with angels, as the conquering king. But his coming changed the destiny of his people. His coming has changed the destiny of the universe. Be certain of this, Christian. You're included in this destiny. As sure as you're sitting in that seat right now, you will be part of that global number. You will bring him praise from the nations. And it will be praise that will go out before the nations. And you can be confident. His proclamation will lead to our transformation and a global salvation.